0: So I'll take this opportunity right now to uh, um, introduce you guys to Sandra Unger. She was uh, staff here for many, many years and uh, just a big part of Woodland Hills's direction. And she's uh, now the head of a ministry called The Lift, which is in East St. Paul, I believe. And uh, would you give her a warm, fuzzy, loving welcome for Sandra Unger? Good to see you yeah. Woo! Now I got nothing to say. <laughs> I'd probably think of something. You know me. It's good to be back. Good to see you guys. It's been a minute since I've been here. Been doing some cool stuff on the east side, which we'll talk a little bit about. But right now, I want to start out by telling you the story of a lifetime. This is the story of Kayla. And Kayla was born to a mom who was just 16 years old. Her mom tried to continue going to high school, but it just got to be too much, and she dropped out in the middle of her junior year. And Kayla's dad dropped out of the picture even before that. The family had a bit of luck when they qualified for a two-bedroom apartment in public housing for only $50 a month. But other than that, for Kayla and her mom, almost everything was extremely difficult. Throughout the 16 years that she lived with her mom, Kayla first witnessed drug deals by her neighbors and then by her mom. She watched men come and go, leaving new babies behind. There were three after Kayla, all girls. The family never owned a car, so Kayla's world was very, very small. In elementary school, she walked three blocks by herself to the bus stop, because her mom was usually still sleeping. When things weren't going well, she took the brunt of her mother's frustrations through screaming and yelling and hitting and ultimate tearful and shame-filled apologies, with promises that would never happen again until next week when it happened again. Kayla's very favorite thing about first grade was that she got real grapes in her lunch. She never got real grapes at home. She sometimes traded, them with her, traded her cookies for the grapes with friends. She also liked the attention she got from the volunteer who came and listened to her read out loud. By the time she was nine, she was spending almost all of her free time caring for her three younger sisters. Sometimes there was food and sometimes there wasn't. But even when there was, it was things like chips, and food from the dollar store, canned beans, and noodles. When Kayla was 10, her mom's boyfriend moved in, and things took a turn for the worse. He stayed around a lot longer than the other men had, and Kayla witnessed drunken arguments. And when she was 10, she had to fight off his advances toward her 10-year-old body. When she tried to talk to her mom about this, she became angry and accused Kayla of trying to steal her boyfriend at 10. Kayla started avoiding going home, which was just fine with her mom, who seemed to live in complete and utter fear that the boyfriend would leave. But when Kayla was gone from home, she spent the whole time terrified about the safety of her three younger sisters. She was not sure why her mom insisted on keeping this boyfriend around, because he ate all their food, he yelled and screamed, he didn't have a job, and he bossed everybody around. But that just became the new norm. The boyfriend finally did leave, after a couple years, but he was followed by a string of boyfriends, most of whom showed Kayla that men are not safe. Kayla did not know a single married couple or even one friend whose father lived at home with them. Her only information on married and, on marriage and intact families came from watching television, and she really loved the old Cosby show. She dreamed of being part of that family and sharing a bedroom with Rudy. Kayla had a few friends along the way, but they never seemed to last. They would get put out of their houses or move to grandma's in a different state or find a good deal on an apartment in the next city over. Regardless of the reason, people regularly disappeared from Kayla's life. No one had a home phone, and everybody's cell phone number changed from month to month. So when people disappeared, that was pretty much the end of it. The very best part of Kayla's life by far was school. She loved the lunches, she loved getting away from the chaos, she loved reading, she loved to write poems and stories. Unfortunately, she had to miss school quite a bit to babysit her younger sisters, but she did her best to get there as much as she could. Sometimes she would get up late and miss the bus, and then she was stuck at home all day with nothing to do, unless her mom really wanted her out of the house and had $5 for a bus fare, or a cab, or a friend who would drive her so she would get there an hour late or two hours late. Another struggle was finding a place to do homework. The house was always a mess, and every surface was covered with paper and food and junk. She had no desk, and so she'd drag the living room lamp over into the corner and sit on the floor doing her homework. And everybody walked across her homework, and everybody walked across her, and she'd wake up in the morning and her homework was missing, and so she'd have to do it again real fast on the bus on her way there. She had a hard time finding pens and pencils that worked and always had to borrow paper from classmates. When they had a class project, she was embarrassed to admit that she couldn't afford poster board or glue or paint or whatever was required. Even if she had a dollar or two, the closest Walgreens was over a mile away. When she got into junior high, it seemed to her that the game changed. Kids got meaner and people started to talk about gangs. She had to go out of her way to avoid all of the fights that broke out every single day. What she wore also became even more important. You got ridicule if you weren't wearing the right clothes. Sometimes she got a couple of bucks for babysitting. Sometimes her grandma had an extra $10 for her. But it was really hard to piece together a wardrobe. And it was especially hard to go to school feeling good about yourself when there was no laundry detergent, or soap, or toilet paper, or underwear. Sometimes she stayed home just to avoid ridicule. Her classrooms were overcrowded and her books were years out of date. When she was in her eighth grade math class, there weren't enough desks to go around, so she usually sat on the floor using a book with no cover that was over 20 years old. And more and more, her assignments were requiring computers and internet access and printers, things that they just didn't have. She could try to get two miles to the library, or she could stay after school and use their computers, but then she had no way to get home. By the time Kayla started high school, she'd already suffered through abuses from several of her mom's boyfriends. These always caused the worst fights with her mom. And at the beginning of her junior year, her mom finally kicked her out after accusing her again of trying to steal her boyfriend. Kayla started couch hopping, spending a night or two on the couch of friends whose moms didn't care too much if she was there or didn't notice her. Up to this point, Kayla had defied the odds. She got all of her credits her first two years in high school without even having to go to summer school. That's quite an accomplishment. Her English teachers tended to take special notice of her because she was just a great writer. She won an award for a poem, and it was published in a local magazine. But no one in her family noticed. Her school counselor kept the idea of college in front of her. She was involved in a program that helped kids like her get into college. And the more she talked to her counselor, the more she started dreaming about a reality where she lived in a dorm with friends, and she got three meals a day cooked for her, and she got out of the hood. She applied and was accepted to a state school that was three hours from home. She received quite a bit of scholarship money and just had to take out a $6,000 loan to cover the first year costs. This college offered shuttles for kids from her neighborhood to get to the campus, and one day... With great expectation and with three trash bags full of all of her earthly belongings, she climbed on the shuttle and arrived at college for the first time. When she got there, she was really surprised to find that there were very few non-white people on the campus, students or teachers. Her roommate was white and had been delivered by her mom and dad, along with a car full of furniture and appliances and blankets and decorations, And Kayla watched with utter fascination as they unloaded everything and arranged everything and made the room perfect, and then said tear-filled goodbyes. Over the next several weeks, two things became really clear to Kayla. The first thing was that she was over her head academically. Her high school was apparently subpar because she just could not keep up with the workload. Second, she was very far out of her cultural comfort zone. The cafeteria food was bland compared to what she was used to, and all of the people she was meeting were from suburbs or rural areas. She was the only one who never learned to drive. And how could she when they didn't own a car and her mother had never learned to drive? Everyone there spoke English, but no one spoke her language. She had never been out of the state, but she felt like she moved to a foreign country. So Kayla went home for Christmas break, and she never went back. She left all of her clothes and belongings in her dorm room for someone else to deal with. She just needed to live in a familiar place. As painful as home was, at least everything made sense. Even the chaos there proceeded in a predictable manner. And she needed some food with some flavor. She found a retail job making a minimum wage and had no option but to try living with her mom again. Well, soon, she was taking care of her three younger sisters, She was trying to keep her mom sober. She was trying to get back and forth to work on time. The store she worked at was just seven miles from where she lived, but it took two buses and over an hour to get there. Six months later, she started getting notices that she needed to start paying $70 a month for her student loan. In the first year, she was able to make a few payments, but she only brought home $700 a month after taxes. She gave half of it to her mom to help with rent and food, she had a cell phone for $50, her bus fare was 100 her little sisters always needed shoes and socks, and there was just never enough money to go around. After another year of this, she realized her life was going nowhere fast. She decided to try a local technical school to become an LPN, and she found that if she finished the two-year program, she could be making $20 an hour. She felt just the tiniest little bit of hope that she had in quite a while. She was accepted to the program but ran into a snag when the school found that she was in default on her previous student loans. With penalties and interest, she now owed even more than the $6,000 she'd originally borrowed. The technical college encouraged her to get that straightened out and then come back and they'd enroll her in her program. She called someone about the loan. She was really, really going to make it work. And the lady on the phone was very nice to her and explained how she could get back on track. The problem was that Kayla didn't understand anything that the woman was saying. She was speaking English, but none of the words made sense to her. Kayla had never had a credit card. She'd never borrowed money before. She'd never had a bank account, and neither had her mom. And she just plain did not understand what the woman was saying, and she didn't know what questions she was supposed to be asking. And $6,000 may as well have been a million to Kayla. At this point... After years of trying to beat unbelievable odds, she finally gave in. And over the next three years, she didn't make any payments on her student loan. She did have two kids whose daddies didn't stick around too long. She couldn't hold on to her job because she had no one to watch the kids, and she couldn't afford daycare on minimum wage. So she bounced with her kids from house to house, from friend to friend. She did qualify for WIC and food stamps so they at least could eat, and she was able to sell food stamps sometimes when she needed a little bit of cash. She was no longer dreaming of school and jobs and escaping the ghetto. She no longer wrote poems. She was 21. One day at Rainbow, she was using her food stamps to buy groceries, and she could see that the well-dressed white lady behind her did not approve. She was just tired of it, and she turned to her and said, "'What is your problem?' And the lady responded, Oh, nothing except for that my tax dollars are apparently at work today buying your groceries. Why don't you get a job like everybody else? McDonald's is hiring. Well, part of what I do for a living is I answer for Kayla. So here's the answer. I have been beat down, broken, molested, ignored, abused, abandoned, neglected, scarred, judged, and shamed Every day of my 21 years. I have used every ounce of strength and energy and every opportunity to try to be better than this. Yes, I've made mistakes, but I am not lazy. I am alone. And furthermore, McDonald's pays 7.25 an hour. They hire people for 20 hours a week. So I would make $145 before taxes. Bus fare would be $18. And childcare, if I could find it, would be over $125. You do the math. This story makes me really, really sad because this is the neighborhood I live in, and these are the kids that I deal with. Kayla isn't any one person, because I try not to put our kids on blast, but she's a composite of all of the kids that we work with. Some of their stories are even worse than Kayla's, and some of them are a little bit better, but none of them look like the life I lived up to the age of 21. I'm sad because people in our cities don't understand that this reality is right here. I interact with a very diverse group of people from the city and the suburbs, and in conversation, I often find that there's a lot of people who just think life is great. We've just come so far, and everything's improved. And yeah, the economy's down a little bit, but, but we're, we're doing pretty good as a human race, at least here in the United States. Well, when they find out where I live and what I do, um, they will launch into a very long explanation about poverty and its causes, its root causes, and, and how we should overcome it. And where do you live, I might ask, in the process of this conversation. Oh, I live in suburb X, they might say. Well, there's nothing wrong with suburb X, but this is just very strange, that when I would say to people, I live, and I've lived for almost a decade in a poor neighborhood, and I work full-time with families who are struggling, that they will then give me their wisdom for 15 minutes about poverty. I just think that's odd. I mean, does anybody else think that's odd? You'd think they might say, what do you think about poverty? And I have the microphone today, so guess what? <laughs> I have a captive Lock the doors. <laughs> it's just strange to me. And I think the issue is that people are a little bit afraid to know what's really going on, and they're a little bit afraid of what's going to be required of them. And today I'm going to talk about what's going on, and I'm going to talk about what's required of all of us. Mother Teresa said, Being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody, I think. That is a much greater hunger, a much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat. So I want to talk today about poverty at a much deeper level than just money. Yes, Kayla needed money at times, but not just money, and not even primarily money. Author P.J. O'Rourke said, you can't get rid of poverty by giving people money. And I don't know if he was being funny or serious, but he actually has a point. And this has been proven over and over and over in every context from sub-Saharan Africa, where billions and billions and billions of dollars over decades has been given and loaned, and still, everybody is poor and struggling with basic needs. And also in poor neighborhoods, like my neighborhood, where welfare programs try really hard to resource money. They give money, though, to people, it creates dependency, and does nothing to address the core issues behind poverty. So money is not the solution to poverty. What makes a difference every time and in every single place is when people who have resources, money, connections, knowledge, build relationships with those who do not. And once that relationship is formed, and believe me, I understand the obstacles involved in forming it, every single thing changes for everyone involved. So what could this relational approach have done for Kayla? How many points of intervention were there where people could have jumped in and turned the story in a different direction? When she wanted some grapes? When she was struggling with abuse and needed somebody to care about her? When she was trying to escape the boyfriends? When she missed the bus? When she was trying to celebrate her poem? When she had to watch siblings? When she needed poster board? How many times every single week could someone have come along and nudged her story in a different direction? Could someone have helped her understand what a student loan was so she could get that problem taken care of and become an LPN and make a living? Yeah, a little bit of cash might have been needed, but mostly she just needed someone who was financially literate. And what about her mom? Because every story needs a villain. So let's make mom the villain, because she was a bad mom in a lot of ways. Except... Kayla's mom's life was even worse than Kayla's life. And her mom's life was even worse. And her mom's and her mom's and her mom's for generations. No one sets out to be a bad mom. But if you don't have a good mom, it's really hard to figure out how to act like one. Especially when you're only 16. Here's a more personal reason I know Money isn't the problem, because when some of my neighbors got hold of some, nothing changes. So I've been for several years on the east side of St. Paul, and over that period of time, at least three people have inherited a pretty large sum of money, either inherited or got it through some court case or something. So I'm talking $10,000 at least. That's a lot of money for someone who's living in public housing and doesn't have enough food so you say, oh, good, $10,000. I sat down with all of them before they got the money. Let's make a plan for what we're going to do. And in every case, within two months, all of the money was gone. Somehow I couldn't reach them by phone during those two months. And what I want to say is, "Ah, you're so dumb. I want to judge you because that's not what you do with $10,000. Didn't you learn you need an Excel spreadsheet? You need to pull yourself together. And I did. I, I just wanted to scream. I did scream a little bit. But you have to look a little deeper because our first reaction with these things is to judge and to tell people they're dumb, or at least mine is. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus does, so I try to step back a little bit. Say, what's going on here? I need, there's something I need to learn that's going on. Because this is three times. This isn't one time. This is three times. And this is what I learned. I learned four things about what's going on. Number one, when you're financially illiterate, you don't know what a spreadsheet is and you don't know what to do with money. If you've never had more than $20 in your pocket, you don't know how to manage money. You don't know how to manage $100, let alone 10000 You don't know how to make a budget. You, it seems like you owe everybody in the world money. And $10,000 is so much that it actually feels like monopoly money. So you just go around, yeah, I'll take boardwalk and park place and let's put a couple houses on them. I mean, really, you just don't know what you're supposed to do with it. And the second thing is that you end up with everybody that you've ever met and your cousin's 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 dog coming around for money. When our kids who work in our job skills program come home with a paycheck of $125, they pretty much need to get rid of it on the way home. They need to deposit it. They need to spend it. Because once they get home, mom needs it for groceries and junior needs shoes and you owe me $10 from five years ago. This just The whole paycheck is gone. When you get $10,000, dollars you got a crowd out in the yard begging And so what you do is you spend it right away because if you don't, it will all be gone. Lost benefits is another problem. If you put $10,000 in the bank, all of your benefits through the county and the state are going to go away. And when the $10,000 is gone, it's very hard to get some of those benefits back. And so you spend it. And then the fourth thing is, if your life is as difficult as Kayla's, there's no fun. There's nothing great happening. You're not looking ahead to a wonderful future. And you get $10,000, it's really fun to go to the mall and spend $10,000. I mean, I've never done it, but it seems like you could have a good couple of days. (laughs) So why not? So instead of judging, I'm trying to understand what is the reality that happens for someone like Kayla born to a teen mom that she gets to the age of 20 or 30 and gets $10,000. Well, why would I expect anything to be different based on the life experience that she's had? The other reason I know that money is not the solution is based on conversations that I have with our teenagers all the time. And here's one that I had just a few months ago. I was talking to a kid whose life story was probably worse than Kayla's. And I said to him, tell me what you need right now. And he was basically homeless. And I thought maybe he would want a truck full of money or... And this is what he said to me. I need somebody to care about me. He's 15 years old. Even this kid was smart enough to know that money was not what he needed primarily. So what does the Bible say about this? We look at this a lot at Woodland Hills in terms of looking at issues of social justice and poverty. So I know you're all well-educated, but let's just review by going through the entire Bible. Um, We'll start in the New Testament. We'll start actually in Luke, where you all spent about 10 years, I think, so we'll review near the beginning. This is about when Jesus, he spent the first 30 years of his life pretty much behind the scenes. And when he, after 30 years, he announced his public ministry and he stood up in the synagogue and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from a passage, which is now uh, in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the first thing Jesus said is, I came here to bring good news to the poor. That's that's what I'm here to do. So where is the good news for Kayla? Like most of my neighbors, she's been in church her whole life, surrounded by people whose stories are just like hers. And the question is whether the good news is more than just information. Where is the community of God's people who have something to offer who could show up in her life with some good news that has some feet on it. Purely from my own observation, and this makes me sad, is that most Christians are not doing what Jesus said to do. Wendell Berry in Blessed Are the Peacemakers says, especially among Christians in positions of wealth and power, the idea of reading the Gospels and keeping Jesus' commandments, as stated therein, has been replaced by a curious process of logic. According to this process, people first declare themselves to be followers of Christ, and then they assume that whatever they say or do merits the adjective Christian. (laughs) This is backwards. This is not how it works. Jesus made his mission very clear, and he's not interested in 21st century revisions. Here and in many other places in Scripture, we find the call to prioritize care for those in need. In the church that I grew up in, none of this was ever said. They would have said that Kayla has just as much access to the good news as everyone else and she just needs to pray and go to church and everything would be good. But that's a really, really individualistic read on something that was written long before individualism became the reigning philosophy. The Protestant work ethic is not, in fact, biblical despite its origins. The truth as it would have been understood in Jesus' day is that the only way to follow him is together. We all need to take hold of each other's bootstraps since mine have been pulled up, I can help Kayla pull up hers. And when she understands how that works, she can help someone else pull up theirs. And the irony to this whole bootstrap thing is that you cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Have you ever fallen in quicksand? Or like a river, at least? And you, you, if you're stuck and you try to pull on your own, you understand the impossibility. I don't, I'm not a scientist, but you can't pull yourself up And you're going to need some outside help. And the other thing is that we're always telling people in my neighborhood to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, already impossible, and they're not wearing any boots. Also impossible. So this individualism thing where everybody just needs to get their act together just doesn't work because some people are born in quicksand with no boots and some people are not. And we have responsibility to one another because this world is not about individualism and the kingdom is certainly not about individualism. The same book of the Bible that's used to defend this idea of hard work and personal responsibility, which is Proverbs, has at least 30 verses that speak of our responsibility for or God's view of those who are poor. And I want to see if you can find the, like, sort of some thematic elements as we go through these. Proverbs fourteen thirty one: Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. 1917. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will be reward them for what they have done. 21.13, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. 22.9, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. 28.27, those who give to the poor will act nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. 29.7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. 31.9, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Does anyone see a theme, some thematic elements going through here? I skipped over a whole bunch. I think you get the point. And since we're going through the whole Bible today, we'll skip back to the New Testament and we'll look at Matthew, another gospel. Now, Matthew 25 has parables, which are stories that tell, sort of make a point that's not literal. And the story that I'm talking about in Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is sometimes called a parable, but it's not a parable. It's the story of when the Son of Man comes to judge the nations. So Son of Man is Jesus. And so what it's saying is here's what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is going to come back and judge the nations. And it says he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he has a message for both. And what he says to the sheep on his right is, Blessed are you because of your treatment of me when I was hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, sick, and in prison. And they say, when? When did we treat you that way? And he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, when Jesus says, truly I tell you, that's like a really, really important phrase that says a big weighty saying is coming. This is important. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Then he says to the goats, depart from me, Because you didn't treat me well when I was hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, sick, and in prison. And they say, when? And he says, truly I tell you. Here comes a weighty saying. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And he sends them to eternal punishment. So the clear message here is that Jesus is with the poor. And the way we treat the poor is the way we treat Jesus. The point is not to say, let's care for the poor so that we don't get sent to eternal punishment. The point is that if Jesus is with the poor, and if I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to be with Jesus, then I need to be with the poor. Where are the poor? That's where I want to be. I had a real-life situation, um, a kind of an aha moment with this. This was several years back. We had had some two teenage boys from the neighborhood move into our basement. And you know these were some rough guys. And they kind of destroyed parts of the house. Like broke stuff, lamps and furniture, and ate a lot of stuff. And I might have mentioned this before, but one of them decided at midnight that he wanted to cook some fish. And so he took like a quart of really nice olive oil and poured it in the pan and cooked up a fish. And we woke up and went, does that smell? And then in the morning I went, where is my olive oil? So anyway, really annoying things to me. <laughs> where I thought, I should be really grouchy about this. Like, I should be grouchy about the lamps and the furniture and the food and the olive oil. And I felt myself very much at peace with all of this chaos going on in my house. And I was trying to figure out, why do I feel this kind of peace? And then I thought of Matthew 25. And I thought, when you care for those who don't have food and don't have clothes and don't have care, you're caring for Jesus. So I had this moment where I went, Jesus is living in my basement. Two Jesuses are living in my basement. I got so excited. So I started saying to people like my husband, Jesus is living in the basement. And then I would say to my kids, Jesus is living in the basement. And they're like, mom is completely cracked. And then I said to the guys in the basement, I said, you guys are Jesus. And they're like, we've got to move out of this place. (laughs) But I think this is a very important theological point because Jesus does not come into our basement or our lives to take from us and eat our food and use up our olive oil. Jesus comes in to transform and bring peace and change us and grow us and show us what's important. And I'm telling you, this is what Jesus in my basement did. He utterly changed, not just me, but my whole family's understanding of what life was about. So who's giving to who? It was really powerful. When Jesus comes and is alongside the poor. He doesn't do it in a sort of wimpy, disempowered, I'm sad that you're poor. That's not the Jesus we follow. He comes alongside the poor and he resides with the poor in an active, passionate way. His presence is real and you can feel it. Theologian Karl Barth said, God always takes his stand unconditionally and passionately on this side and on this side alone. Against the lofty and on behalf of the lowly Against those who already enjoy right and privilege And on behalf of those who are denied it and deprived of it The command of God is a call for the champion of the weak Against every kind of encroachment on the part of the strong He is with them He is for them And if you need more information or evidence of this Read any of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament Read Isaiah, read Amos, read Hosea, read Micah Just pick one And you will find the God of Israel, Yahweh, saying through the prophets, you have got to care for those in need. You will not sell the needy for a pair of sandals. And this is the God we worship today, who stands in solidarity in a powerful way on the side of the poor and calls us to do the same. Bart also taught that in their invisibility and in their suffering, and I know they're invisible because I have people tell me they don't know they're there, and I know they're suffering because they're my neighbors. That in these ways, the poor more closely resemble Christ than their rich neighbors do. And again, I want to be near Jesus. I want Jesus' priorities to be my priorities. So what do we do with all this? How do we respond? What do I wake up and think about and do differently because of this? Well, I want to be clear that I'm not telling you to stop giving any money to worthy causes. (laughs) Just don't let your money get detached from you. Don't assume that what God is primarily asking you for is your money. He's asking you for much more than that. He's asking you and I to reach out beyond our comfort zone and love, in places, and in ways that we would rather not. And the way that I would know we would rather not is that most of the girls in the city with stories like Kayla, and there are thousands, manage to go through their whole lives and never run into good news. So if this is a Christian nation, then where is everybody? And I return to Wendell Berry again. According to this process, people first declare themselves to be followers of Christ, and then they assume that whatever they say or do merits the adjective Christian. We wish the message was easier or required less of us, or maybe we wish it only asked for our money. But that's not what we sign on for when we join the community of people who follow Jesus. We are people who give of ourselves to be in relationship with those who go without. It's easier to get excited about the poor, with a capital P, than to love specific men and women who may be desperate, lonely, and in need of a shower. Loving the poor, in general, may be an excuse for loving nobody, in particular. You can't help the poor. You can only help a person. It's easy to love the poor. It's hard to love a person. The ask and the challenge is to get particular, to love a person. And when you love someone, they're your friend. Period. You're not their messiah, and they're not your project. When your friend needs food, you buy him some. If your friend needs a ride, you give her one. If your friend is in trouble with rent or student loan, you help him. It may involve some money, but it's your friend, and so you're willing to help out. And this is the gospel of Christ. This is what friendship looks like in the kingdom of God. It's said to be radical that Jesus called his disciples friends. And we talked about this, or we sang about this today. We are friends of God. And the reason it's so radical is Jesus is divine and they're merely human. And he's not saying, I'm better than you and I will lead you. And he's saying, we're friends. How radical to come down so far and willing to be friends with mere humans. How much less radical that we would befriend people from a different social class than us. It should just be the norm if we're following the example of Jesus. And in these situations of these kind of friendships, both people's lives get utterly transformed for the better in the process. So what if your family or group of friends got to know Kayla right now when she's 21 and has two kids and she's angry and pretty much homeless? Could your community come alongside her and help her get on her feet? Could you help her get her student loans straightened out and get back in school? Could you listen to her when she's in pain? Could you help her with childcare? Well, what if you met her five years ago when she was just 16 and still had hope? She was succeeding in high school and looking ahead. Could you have helped her get into a school that matched her better? Could you have helped her when her mom kicked her out? Could you have celebrated the poem that was published in the magazine? What if you met her 10 years ago when she was 11 and fighting off the advances of mom's boyfriends? Could you have helped make sure she was safe? Could you have made sure she made it to school? Could you have bought her some grapes? Could you have introduced her to the first men she's ever met who are trustworthy and caring? And how would you and your family be changed by this interaction? Might you or your kids be more grateful for the things that you have? Might you learn to brush off more easily the little irritations that happen every day? Might you become more generous through this interaction? And might your prayers of thanks before dinner have been more heartfelt? And what if we wait and meet Kayla ten years from now, when she's had a few more kids and is looking more like her mother every day? Something is lost every single day in the lives of so many. The task here is just enormous, and the need is urgent. And there's no shortage of places, if you're willing to try, where you can make friends like Kayla. You just need to put a little effort out. There's a Ramsey County shelter just up the road. The family place, Dorothy Day, the safe zone are all downtown. Emma's place is in Maplewood. The lift is on the east side. All of these places have people like Kayla in them, just waiting for somebody to come and nudge their story along in a different direction. And I realize that it is not easy and that we are busy. I just realize that it's a call and it's what Jesus would do. So it won't be easy. It will probably be the hardest thing you've ever done. It will drive you crazy. It will stretch you in ways that you do not want to be stretched. It will challenge everything you believe. It will make you uncomfortable, kind of like Jesus does. This kind of relationship will also increase your faith It will enrich your life. It will grow you up. It will broaden your vision. It will transform you. Kind of like Jesus does. God, it's my prayer today that all of us in this room would at least spend a moment thinking about what you require of us. And you come so graciously, and you come with love, and you call us. And I pray that we would have the courage to hear And you also speak loudly on behalf of those in need. So I pray for those who are here who may be Kayla, who may be living in that story. I pray that you will bless them, surround them, help them to see and feel and experience the good news through this community in ways that they never have. And for all of us, Lord, open our eyes and close our mouths. Help us to listen and learn and get out of our comfort zone and be kingdom people as you have called us to be. And I pray this in the powerful and loving and gentle and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And if you need prayer, please come to the front.